This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, we're doing cartoons on a podcast. Yes, the Times and Sunday Times political cartoonist Peter Brooks and Morton Morland. They're both geniuses as far as I'm concerned. They explain how they got into it, how they feel about politicians who buy their cartoons, and are they worried that they might be replaced by AI? So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at the news and the way we report the news with these two. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, yeah, it's a Thursday, so it must be Manveen and Matthew. Manveen Rana's here. Hello, Man- Manveen. Hello, hello. Hello, good to have you with us. And a brand new Matthew for today, uh, Matt Deegan. Uh, host, I'm very excited uh, to be here. Host of the media. Are you actually a Matthew, Matt? Uh, I'm a Matthew at home. Yes. Uh, I'm a Matthew when my parents talk about me, but not to me. Perfect. Exactly <laughs> right. No, because we've, we've had it a couple of times. We booked a, uh, a Matt thinking they were a Matthew, and they've turned out to be a Matthias. And that's oh, our, not that, acceptable. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> well, Matt, it's great to have you here. And um, a really good opportunity, given that you know, you, you uh, present the media podcast, write a very good email about radio, uh, newsletter about radio as well. Manvin, you've done lots of um, foreign reporting and covering conflicts like this before. And I just want to try and get into some of the discussion about the language used when reporting uh, Israel and Gaza. Uh, clearly, the BBC's borne the brunt of it in part because it's the national broadcaster. Also, because in part it seems to seems to have taken a, a more stringent view, which then doesn't seem very consistent. First of all, Manvi, your your approach to this story and why language is important. Language is always important, but you know, with uh, a situation like this, which is so fraught and so you know, every word ends up being quite loaded, and it will be interpreted in many ways across the world. So you have to be so careful. You know, if you're a journalist, you don't want to alienate people. You want them to be coming to you for the facts, um, and you don't want to alienate them with with the language that you use. I think, you know, I've I've watched the argument around the BBC closely. I you know worked at the BBC for many years. I covered the Middle East. Um, I can understand why they've been reluctant to call Hamas terrorists in all of this. Um, And I know that that's contentious. I know that that will annoy a lot of people. But I think 
uh, I always think it's sort of, I think it's safer to call them militants who have carried out a terrorist act. And it was a horrific, appalling, um, you know, com completely horrendous terrorist act. But the difficulty is, you know, they are also a governing force. And I think when we talk about terrorists, you know, we never we never sort of say Iran is a terrorist state. We'll say it's a rogue state. We'll say it's a murderous government. We very rarely say it's a terrorist one because there's something about the way we apply the word, which usually sort of only means it's, you know, sort of act, um, groups who are sort of on the margins trying to meet their political ends uh, using violence and terror. And, and, you know, when you sort of say that in the Middle East, when you say that, you know, Hamas are terrorists, people turn around and say they are also, you know, they are a governing power. They are a political force that has a lot of support. The moment you call them terrorists, you're telling the Palestinian people yet again that they don't have a state. You wouldn't call, you know, you wouldn't call the government in Iran a terrorist government. You would say they were murderers. Call them murderers. You know, say, say they're militants. The moment you say that, you're once again dispossessing the Palestinian people. I think that that's something you hear quite a lot in the Middle East. And that's why I've always been reluctant to call them terrorists, but at the same time, not reluctant to say what they've done was a horrific act of terror. Well, that's why that's interesting, that distinction between uh, saying it was a terror attack by Hamas, distinctly yeah. calling Hamas terrorists. But well, I suppose then, are we, are we just also... dancing on the head of a pin then? Because the people who carried it out then, the, literally the individuals who went and did it, then are terrorists, aren't they? Yeah, but Hamas itself is also a governing group. It's also yeah. a political party. It, you know, it carries out acts of charity. It keeps sort of a lot of the Gaza Strip going. You know, you sort of have to acknowledge that it's it's much more than just that. You know, if you go into the Middle East and, and sort of say that they're terrorists, they'll sort of turn around and say, well, you know, the American government has carried out acts of terror. And, you know, you get into these awful sort of arguments. Um, and for them, it's it's just sort of, it's as if you're not acknowledging that the Palestinians have a state that they, they have elected in the past, Hamas, it is a governing group. If it commits acts act of terror, by all means, call it that, but it's many other things as well. And I think that's the difficulty. I think for the BBC, their justification is sort of, you know, along Ofcom lines of you don't want to be imbalanced. Also, you know, there was a tradition where they never called the IRA terrorists because one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Yeah. And the moment you do that, it means that, you know, half of the Irish population won't listen to you. They won't trust you. Whereas actually you want to be there as the impartial, factual uh, node for information for everybody, uh, whatever their political beliefs. So, you know, I th I th it's it's a really complicated process. The bit that's made me really uncomfortable with all of this, actually, is that, you know, the, the BBC is is a national broadcaster and it has an international impact and it's very aware of that. It's not, however, a state broadcaster. So I think the moment the government start telling it what it should be calling people. That makes me particularly uncomfortable. Uh, you know, I, I I don't like the idea of the government dictating editorial policy. Well, I, suppose saying, it, I suppose if it is independent of government, then the government can can comment on it, can't it? They, they, just they can't, comment, they can't but the idea that the, the, they're yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. trying to dictate it feels yeah. very uncomfortable. Matt, what, what have you made of this debate? Because actually it was thrown in, it was unfortunately thrown into stark contrast this week because there was that uh, shooting uh, in Brussels, which the BBC immediately called uh, a terror attack, uh, in contrast to people, you know, people pointing out that what you know they said they didn't call anyone a terrorist, and now suddenly uh, they are. What have you made of this sort of linguistic minefield that the BBC is trying to pick its way through? Well, the challenge is that every news story after three days becomes a news story about the BBC, um, yeah. and there are lots of people that want the BBC to to uh, take some joy in the BBC being attacked. That's not to say um, it's...
you know that they don't get things wrong i think the other thing is when you say the bbc it's not one you know one singular organization uh it's twenty five thousand employees um and in breaking news scenarios people make snap judgments some of which occasionally are wrong um and uh i think it's very easy to um kind of broad brush described the BBC as doing something and in that example uh, around terrorism you know one journalist said something and another journalist said something else um, in the wash it gets fixed or or or, or it becomes a, a more um considered view uh, the problem is that in a 24-hour media environment that will be clipped and sent out yeah. and used for either side's um uh, benefit and then on the um uh the, the sort of broader point and the you know the BBC was caught up in this as well but the the way the media in a 24 he said 24 hours like second by second you've got to report it on twitter and then we saw what happened after the the bombing of the the hospital people very quick to report that it was Israel then very quick to report that it wasn't um there were various videos and audio clips put online that supposedly proved or disproved something and again it was a real reminder man Reen, to just stop and take a breath you can say a yeah. thing has happened but reporting stop and take a, a breath yeah absolutely but also sort of um you know god anybody who's involved in this world will tell you it's impossible to be able to say for certain um, you know, who was responsible for an attack like that right now. So, you know, where we are having to sort of explain that there is a balance of probability and all of those things. But, you know, you're, you're not going to know definitively. So to to put out headlines that, that assume you do is just sort of foolish. I think everybody has to stop and accept that it's just, you know, with something like this, it would take a very big forensic investigation. None of us can really know. Um, and we just have to sort of reflect that. I think that's the safest thing to do. And just on, on the use of language, I mean, I would say one of the things which is sort of quite heartening almost and makes you think maybe there is some hope for the Middle East moving towards uh, a peace at some point in the future. Um, it, there was a really interesting article in The Economist this morning, which just sort of points out that a lot of the media in the Arab world, so in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which in the past would have spoken about what's been happening in Israel at the moment, um, you know, through obviously through through a uh, pro-Palestinian lens, st it still does a lot of that. But, you know, they would have called the Israeli army the occupying army. Every time they referred to them, it would have been the occupation army. They don't do that anymore. You know, they talk about it as the Israeli army. And that sort of um, hopefully sort of shows you that, you know, they, they ha there had been this movement before what happened two weeks ago towards sort of a normalization of relations with Israel between, um, mm. you know, we, we thought the Saudis were on the verge of signing up to a deal. The fact that it, they're, they're being more cautious, the language is more careful uh, in, a, in Arabic media makes you think maybe that's not completely gone. There well, is still hope of, of some kind well, exactly. of... Well, um, exactly. We've, got, yeah, we've got to have hope, otherwise it just, yeah, the whole thing just becomes a bit... Uh... Just, just, just depressing. I suppose is the, um, you know, the reaction yeah. to to the news. And in fact, there's one. Let, well, let's move away slightly from the, the Israel story itself and look at the news in general and the reaction that people have to news. There's this. There's a new survey out looking at people's experience of, of what they call news fatigue. And those who experience news fatigue are less likely to be voters. And this is particularly an issue in Britain. The, the proportion of people who said they were extremely or very interested in the news fell from 70% in 2015 to only 43% this year. So it's almost, well, almost halved. A similar, similar trend has been seen in America. But what's interesting is that among the people who are very interested in the news, 91% of them vote. 
uh, people who watch one or two hours, you know, looking at news and politics. Whereas those who don't at all, only 49%, it's about half of them actually vote. And so how can we, if the news is so grim and unrelenting, Matt, how can we make sure people stay hooked in? Because actually then there's a knock-on effect on democracy. If people are tuning out of the news and then tuning out of of, of the, the, the politics of the country. Well, this is a change in consumer behaviour around news. So if you flash back 30 years, um, a large number of people would watch the 6 o'clock news or the 10 o'clock news or the 9 o'clock news, and there'd be a half-hour distilled version of the news to for you to consume. Uh, whereas today, whether that's rolling news channels or even just on social media, you know, you might not be interested in the news, but you will see things on Twitter or TikTok or, or those places, is that the news is sort of everywhere all of the time. Um, and... If people feel like they would rather not do that, they would rather not consume that, they then become kind of stronger rejectors. Whereas I think previously they could have kind of coped with half an hour that popped up after Coronation Street. Um, uh, and now it's also easier to, to not watch the news when you can just live in a Netflix environment and just consume comedy and drama. Um, you, know, you don't have to consume sort of multi-format channels. I think it's, in it's interesting about you know, the voting side of that. Um, uh is sort of then the natural knock-on, isn't it? You know, that is uh, that, that people have excluded it from their lives, don't want to think about it, choose not to think about it, and therefore don't need to vote. So what do we? What can we do about it, Manveen? Do we need to work... I mean, part of me thinks there's a sort of slight... Just a shift in culture, as Matt was saying, so many other, other things you could be doing. The idea, yeah. the, the good old days where we served up the news and you took it whether you liked it or not, those days are long gone. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think looking at the survey, it's also interesting to look at the time period it covers. You know, it goes from 2015. And if you sort of think what was happening both here and in America during that period, I think if you were to look at it, look at the whole period, you'd actually probably sort of see a curve that looked more like a mountain where interest massively shot up when, you know, Brexit was happening. It felt like everybody was following the news. Um, when Trump came in, it felt like, you know, I mean, um, they don't like to say this out loud, but, you know, the New York Times and CNN will tell you that Trump was great for business yeah. because they'd never had so many people suddenly very engaged, wanting to to know what was happening, wanting to be able to hold their government to account. Um, so I think I think what's happened, and I'd like to hope it's just like sort of these things come in waves, but I think there was so much interest and it was just, it was it went from just being the amount of news you would have consumed before to being every part of your life. You know, you'd be on social media. If you were trying to find something else, it wouldn't matter. You were being constantly bombarded by what Trump has just said or by, you know, arguments about Brexit. And I think that just led to people feeling a little bit wary of it. You know, they're sort of, they're, they're, they're sort of sick to the bottom of their soul of, of, of the fact that so much of the news became as polarized as, the opinion it was suddenly having to, mm. to represent, which it hadn't been before. So en entering the news wasn't just sort of hearing that, you know, here's a 10 o'clock news and, and it's all far away and it's fine. It suddenly became a live battle every day on social media. And I think that's probably switched people off. But, um, you know, they, they almost had too much of it and people are sort of stepping away a bit just for, for their sanity. But, you know, it, given that we're, about, we're, we're into an electoral cycle now that looks like Trump might be back in again in America, I imagine... You know, the figures. Uh, again. Yeah, 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 I think, you know, engagement with the news in America is about to shoot up all over again. Um, and, you know, if it's if it's down here, you know, maybe that's maybe that's a good thing for now. Maybe it means people are a bit calmer about the future. But you want them to come back because I think it's part of your civic duty to know what's happening in the world, to be engaged in it, to be part of it. And I think for us, you know, as as uh, people in the, in the news, you know, you've got to w work out 
what's turned people off? You know, because at the same time as all of this was happening, there was a lot of um, a lot of com- conversations about the mainstream media, and I think that was a terrible turnoff for a whole generation of yeah, people. Yeah, you know, yeah. they they've been taught they shouldn't trust us, and I think you know, you, you suddenly, you know, as now when you've got a war on, you suddenly see there are sort of sources of information on, on social media from everywhere. Uh, and most of them are untested. And you suddenly you realize why you need a mainstream media, because they have standards of testing, hopefully, that, you know, you can you can trust that there is at least a process. So, uh, you know, I, I hope that these things come in waves. And I hope that people will sort of eventually... Um, you know, realise that they need to be very engaged in the world again, but I think um, you're particularly right. there's, there's, in the run-up to an election. There's just a balance to be struck, isn't there? That I, I think so many people being so obsessed with what Kit Malthouse was doing in the Brexit debate probably wasn't particularly healthy. There's probably a, a, a happy media... You know, similarly, hanging on every public pronouncement by the US president uh, is not normal either. So, um, yeah, probably maybe the study needed to go back several decades rather than just one. Matt Deegan from the Media Podcast and Manveen Rana from the Stories of Our Times Podcast. You can get them wherever you get your podcasts from. And talking of podcasts, if you like the podcast and you like this podcast, you can now get bonus podcast editions of Redbox and many other podcasts too. You just need to link up your Time subscription with your Apple subscription and you can get bonus episodes of the Redbox podcast and you can get access to Times Radio today with Stig and Asma Mir speaking to a whole range of people about what's going on in the news and there's loads of other bonus stuff on there as well so you just go and do that wherever you get your podcast from in fact you can go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts that's enough talking about podcasts up next we're talking about cartoons small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Peter Brooks from Autumn Horse. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, let's start at the beginning, if you like. When did you become a cartoonist, Peter Brooks? Oh, 
I became um, a full-time cartoonist for The Times in 1992, having tried uh, on a number of occasions at The Times to do it, and feeling so desperately underconfident that I kept giving up. And then in 1992, with a change of editor, I asked, I've always felt totally ashamed of myself not being able to hack it, basically. And uh, I said, can I give it another try? And he said, yes, of course. And, uh, and so I did. So I've been doing it ever since. Um, but before that, I mixed it with illustrations for people like Bernard Levin, Simon Jenkins, and that sort of thing, which basically is a dead end. Political illustration <laughs> doesn't get you anywhere. Someone else comes up with the idea, because that's in the meat of the piece, and you just join up the dots, basically. So I hated doing that, really. I'm glad, I'm glad you didn't tell Morton that before I asked him to do my book. Ah, <laughs> just the same, Morton, just the same. <laughs> and what about you, Morton? When did you suddenly realise, I am a cartoonist? Well, I didn't know it was a job at all uh, until very late. So I studied journalism first, and then I went on to, I want to be a newspaper designer. Moved to England from Norway, and um, I was doing my dissertation about cartooning. Uh, because I was interested in sort of British political cartooning has a rich history. And I got an interview with Peter here, which was miraculous. And I was so excited about it, went in there, he saw my work, because I'd brought some along that I'd done. And then David Driver, remember? Yeah. He was sat outside. He was the design editor then. And uh, he called me up the next day and asked if I wanted to do some over Christmas, because you were a bit short. Uh, were people, and then I've stayed there ever since, so that's 21 years ago. <laughs> I've been Peter's second in command. Has your style changed? Yeah. Um, and, and in what way? And is that a deliberate thing, or has it just changed? Yeah, it, it was a, a very deliberate thing in my case, because the paper changed. And um, what I mean by that is, I used to draw in a very laboured way, um, in black and white, pen and ink, and used to use this technique of cross-hatching, which is you put one line down, then you cross it, and you build up the tone by doing this multi-million times. Uh, and it takes forever, but it needn't. It needn't. It, I was just a bit laboured. So the paper then decided to go into colour, which completely threw me, flummoxed me for a while. I'd done colour stuff before, but never on a sort of... Uh, you've got to do it by five o'clock sort of basis or anything like that. So it took me quite a long while to sort that out, but I started gradually doing more and more colour work and getting more confident in it. And, uh, you know, luckily there was the space in the paper to do that. And then when I became, as I say, um, a, cool, uh, a cartoonist full-time in 92, it was all full colour from then on um, pretty well. So it's changed, uh, even though you are drawing the same people, you've got very different styles. So, Morton, how did your style come about, and has that changed? <laughs> Massively, because, I, I mean, I was learning on the job. Yeah. You know, I was still a student when I started, so I, I, I had never done a political cartoon when I became a cartoonist for the time, so it was a sort of weird <laughs> thing of <laughs> learning on the job. So I was... I mean, it's not copying, obviously, but I was inspired by a lot of people's styles, including Peter and, and various others. And I sort of had to find my voice on the job. So over those 20 years, it has changed quite a lot. I think I like to think I got my own now, which is sort of firmly oh, yeah. me. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. yeah it, took, it took a long while. I also had to do that sort of, I was there when that um, black and white to colour thing happened. Yeah. You know, we had the, 
I was, I was doing illustrations then for the politics pages when they had the broadsheet parliamentary pages and there was one colour page and one black and white and they're going to have the illustration going across, which wasn't very easy because they insisted on the colour page being full colour. So I would do illustrations that started in black and white and then finished in <laughs> colour, which was very peculiar. I'm glad they sorted that now. And tell us about your, your day and how you approach it, particularly when you're doing for the Times the next day. When do you decide what you're going to draw? Uh, yeah, I think, I think our process is probably quite similar, sort of timing. Yeah, you go through the news sort of first thing in the morning, I've got the newspapers, uh, and then we, have, we get a schedule, like a news list, that has all the sort of tomorrow stories on it, plus there's the conference, which I don't tend to go to. Be, I think you... I listen to it. Yeah. I, I, I the conference is a sort of morning news meeting where the editor will go through yes. the stories he's... It's very useful. ...interested in for the day. And then, sort of by around lunchtime, I will have sort of settled for a, a story around at 12 o'clock, and, and I will do... Yeah, it depends. If I'm really confident of an idea, I'll send just the one and say, this is the one. Or, or I might sort of send it two or three if I want to have a little discussion with... Oh. Uh, Never give them a choice. <laughs> <laughs> never the never also, allow them. The that. worst thing you can do is to sort of try and fill it out with a couple of bad ones. Yeah. Because <laughs> they know if they go for the bad one. Yeah. So, no, so, yeah. And then I the, start drawing around uh, one, two o'clock, and then finish five, six, six, seven, depending on. I mean, sometimes news change in the day and you have to start over again. Is your day pretty similar, Peter? Uh, it's a little bit longer. I'm, I'm, I'm not a cheapskate like Morgan. <laughs> I mean, I usually am afraid to say finished about half seven, much to my wife's chagrin. Uh, <laughs> a bit of a late finisher. And, um, yeah, I'm listening to the radio very early, and uh, it's listening to stuff from then on in, really. Um, and I'm the same as Morton. You throw ideas around, and there's a sort of cut-off point. For me, it's generally about between one and two. And if I haven't got an idea by then, I'm beginning to kind of worry. And, uh, and then it's, you know, head against the drawing board. Sort of <laughs> you're like columnists, you know, you're sort of looking yeah. at the news, coming up with an idea. Mm. I, you know, I'm exactly the same. I only ever pitch one idea to the comment editor on my, my column because they'll always yeah. pick the one that you don't really <laughs> yeah. want to do. Yeah. And then having to wrap. But I'm sure most people in this room could probably rustle up 500 words, 1,000 words. But to produce a work of art, how are you doing it? What's the medium? How do you produce what's basically a, a piece of art in an afternoon? I use a, a big size sketchbook which I uh, sort of plot out what I'm going to draw and I photograph that and send it through um, to the people on the, the comment desk. Show them what I'm doing, just the one idea. <laughs> and then um, you generally, uh, once you've sort of got the, if you like, thumbs up or you better start again or you don't get that very often really. I think what's exciting to me about it, and why I don't really want to stop, even though I'm kind of winding down, is there's a sort of terror in this blank sheet of paper in front of you in the morning without you knowing necessarily what on earth you're going to do. There's no point in saying to yourself, well, I'll get an idea the night before, because you're too knackered after the one you've just done to start thinking of the one next day. So... And news doesn't allow you to do that. Things happen that condition what you're going to be doing during the course of the morning. And unfortunately, quite often, things work so fast now, things happen so fast, say particularly yeah. in this current situation, where you know anything you do is completely written out of the script by the time you get down to 
pen and ink on, onto paper. So you've got to work quite fast. And I actually enjoy the process of doing it once I've got the idea. You've got to have the idea firm in your head, put onto the paper, before you do all the rest of the artistry, if you like, in inverted commas. Do you always send the finished painted work? Do you edit it digitally afterwards? Uh, I tend to... Well, very little. Uh, I mean, if I messed it up, that's the good thing. If you have... Sometimes you're working with ink like I do. You know, you use a dip pen and ink, very sort of traditional, and it does go wrong sometimes. You know, it will go all over the page. And thankfully, nowadays, you don't have to sort of start over. You can Photoshop it out. Or <laughs> I scan it in, do little corrections, check the colouring is all right, and then send it through. But it's not... The process is incredibly old-fashioned, yeah. you know, with the, with the ink still. Well, it's even more old-fashioned if you're old-fashioned yourself. As <laughs> <laughs> Morton manages to do these things, Photoshopping and all the rest, I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> Luckily, my wife's very good at being able to show me how certain things can be done and all the rest of it. But I'm basically there on my own with a scanner, send it through, and there's a very, very good team of, are at the other end of, of, of things and put it onto you know, screen and all the rest of it, and they do the touching, yeah. up touching yeah. out for me, and uh, they're great, they're terrific. I couldn't, couldn't do it without them. I think we are the least sort of changed part of the paper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All, all journalists not have to do sort of audio, and they have yeah, to yeah. do pictures, and they have to do very, you know, we still use the same materials as they did, you know, 100 years yeah, ago. Yeah, exactly. Are you doing it the same size as it appears in the paper, or do you do it much bigger and blow it down, or smaller and... It's, it's bigger. I work case. bigger, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm more or less the same, aren't we? I think I, a little bit larger. Than I, I had to sort of... Because uh, Sunday time space is larger yeah, than the time sheet, yeah. So uh, um, I had to sort of start learning. It's actually different to draw a different size. Um, so I had to... So I changed both of them then into that sort of size. So it's about sort of a good eight, A3. Yeah. Because we wanted to actually compare and contrast a little bit when you are, you know, drawing the same people and the sort of the message you're trying to make. So I think we're going to kick off with one of Morton's of Boris Johnson. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And Rishi Sunak. Well, I just love that sort of dynamic between the two of them. Um, with Boris, when he was so frustrated right at the end, you know, before he left the comments, and he was constantly threatening he would sort of take down Sunak and the, all the rest of it. Uh, and I do, there was just one day where you just sort of felt that that dynamic was what the entire news thing was. And it's amazing so, that you could tell it was him, even though it's just <laughs> some hair and some lips. Yeah, that's the, that's the beauty of Boris. And, and there a few others, you know. There, there are some others that have that sort of... Yeah. I mean, the same with Theresa May. You could just do the shoes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. So, but that makes it him... A lot of fun to draw because you can make him into absolutely anything. And by contrast, there's there's not the same amount to go on with Rishi Sunak. No, no, I struggle with him. I must say. No, I mean, there's, uh, there's I think like we all do. yeah. I think um, yeah. there is obviously the sort of the suit, uh, the short trousers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but there is a certain sort of blandness to it, to yeah. him, which is quite yeah. hard to capture. Yeah. I always uh, remember that. Um, that wonderful aphorism about Clement Attlee. He reminds me of Clement Attlee without the charisma, if you remember. <laughs> <laughs> Clement Attlee, there was, it was once said of Clement Attlee, an empty taxi cab drew up 
and Clement Attlee got out. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I've always thought of him a bit like that, really. He's yeah, got yeah. no, he's got, I mean, that Tory conference, all build up, all huge, you know, razzmatazz about it and all the rest of it. It was pathetic <laughs> what was actually delivered. Anyway, anyway, so, anyway. so that's, that's um, Morton's Boris Johnson. Here is Peter's Boris Johnson. Again, on the one hand, it looks nothing like him, and yet it's obviously him. I hope so. It's all hair and <laughs> I hope so. hair and mess. Um, yes, he is a total and absolute mess. Do you miss him? Yes. Yes. Yeah, very much, very much. It's, it, he he um, is typical of that syndrome that we, I'm afraid to say, inhabit, if you can inhabit a syndrome. And that is that you can't do without them, but you can't stand them. Professionally, he's brilliant, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, personally, you want him out. You don't want him anywhere near, you know, Parliament. Same with Trump, isn't it? Oh, you God, know. yes. They're exactly exactly <laughs> the same. Exactly yeah. the same uh, sort of thing. I mean, he's absolutely brilliant to draw, and he's going to come mm. along next year, and we're all going to be glad of it. And the only trouble is that you've done him so often now, yeah. Trump. What new can you say about him? I mean, they're their own sort of satire aren't they and they're, they're so outrageous themselves that you kind yeah. of in order for satire to work you kind of have to have a sort of grain a sort of base layer of truth and realism and, yeah. and that's yeah. the only way you can make it fun out of it yeah. and when you then have things you know politicians that say such outrageous things like boris did and the, the lying and the and, and trump as well it actually is quite hard to make it more ridiculous than they yeah. are themselves yeah very very yeah. I mean, it strikes me as well, when you think of like impressionists and comedians, everybody does, does an impression of Boris Johnson and Donald yeah. Trump, but they struggle with your Keir Starmers and your yeah. Wishy Sunak. Yeah. There, there yeah. is a sort of overlap, both in the capturing them in a cartoon, but also an impression. Yeah. Keir Starmer, difficult for impressionists to sort of get right. Yeah. It's, it's so surprising how... Um, but again, I think it's to do with personality, because he's actually quite easy to draw, but it's, it's to come up with ideas where you either basically you know you're making fun or you're very cross or you're anything like that it is it, he just doesn't fire anything up so it's yeah. just like you sat there and you're just like you know this key has done really and so I've, i really struggle coming up uh, with I, ideas I, I totally agree with not it. because i'm totally a huge agree. labor supporter and don't want to make take the mickey because i'm quite happy to but it's just he's just really hard to get yeah. to the work to yeah, yeah. about. But I'm the same, and I'm writing my column. It's much easier to do, like, a funny romp about the Tories because yeah. they provide so much material. And obviously yeah. it's easier that they're in power. They're in power, exactly, yeah. So the stake, you know, their stakes are higher yeah. and your ability to point out their flaws greater. Whereas, yeah, someone who's raised on detritus basically not to say or do anything of yeah. interest. Yeah. Well, you've always got Angela Rayner. There's always Angela Rayner. Yeah. It's Peter Brooks and Morton Morland, political cartoonists of the Times and the Sunday Times, discussing the art of cartoons at a special event at the Cheltenham Literature Festival recorded in a big tent where it was raining. So that's the background noise you can hear. Up next, we're going to hear from them discussing how they cope with cartoons being bought by the politicians they're trying to send up and are they worried about AI stealing their job? Across the UK, on DAB, online and on your smart speaker, this is Times Radio. Jolly on Times Radio, bringing you uh, an extract of an event I did at the Cheltenham Literature Festival with the Times and Sunday Times political cartoonists, Peter Brooks and Walter Morland. 
Okay, we've had loads and loads and loads of questions, so thank you for that. Fiona says, are there any politicians who do not want the originals or copies of your cartoons? How do you cope with, you, with, your, with, with politicians who, to demonstrate how, how intensely relaxed they are about you making them look ridiculous, yeah. they want to buy your cartoons and put it in the downstairs loo? Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you like that? Uh, not really, no, but I'm very lucky because I sell my cartoons through a gallery, so I never get to know who it is who's... who's <laughs> but I, do, I, I am told now and again who's... It used to be George um, Osborne's mother yeah. who, would, who would come in and buy cartoons of him. I used to think, oh, how pathetic. She would call me up. Oh, would she? Yeah. Oh, we, once, we once watched one of his speeches together on the phone. <laughs> oh, really? Gosh, yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, he was very there, there are people, like Heseltine used to collect a lot, Paddy Ashdown used to, if you saw him at his desk, the back of his, you know, wall, well, the front of, behind him was full of cartoons of, of him, and the, loads of them were, were doing that. Um, it is quite, I mean, it is quite sort of dispiriting when yeah. you think you really nailed it. Yeah. Uh, and, and then they sort of phone up. It's usually sort of a PA, though, yeah, or uh, sort of yeah. family member. Or yeah, something yeah, like that, yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah. So it is a little bit dispiriting. But at the same time, it's sort of, I think it's really healthy. It's quite reassuring that they are sort of even pretending to <laughs> not take it seriously. Oh, wow. Um, because, yeah. you know, it's the sort oh, of the populist the politicians, the sort of uh, Trumpian politicians, yeah. they, they get properly offended, yes. which is really satisfying. Yeah. You know they yeah. get, you know... Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing, I mean, I find sometimes in my column, if I'm really rude about someone, and then they get in touch and say, oh, I thought it was very funny today. Yeah. Like, no, that's not the point. <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg always says yeah. that. If I want to come yeah. about Jacob Rees-Mogg, he always texts and says, oh, very amusing today. Yeah. But no, you're supposed to be offended. Anyway, that's just my relationship with Jacob Rees-Mogg, which doesn't sound <laughs> as weird as Morton's relationship with George Osborne's mother. Um, are you worried about AI taking your job, Morton? I think that's a really good question. I, I don't think it is necessarily a, a sort of massive problem, I say now. <laughs> but, um, things like memes and other things, I think that is a sort of more of a competition. AI is such, it can, it can never kind of, I don't think it can create that sort of, uh, the accident, the sort of energy of drawing on paper with, with ink. The thing that makes it work, that makes it funny, or, or so, is, is sort of the, the almost sort of haphazard nature of it, the sort of slight splatter, the little accent, it gives it that energy. And sometimes I will do ideas drawn like this in my sort of sketchbook in the morning, and I sort of giggle and think, oh, that's funny. And then I draw it as nicely as I can, and it isn't funny anymore. You know? And it's sort of, it has a little yeah. bit of that. So I think AI is almost too perfect. Yeah. But also the point that you were making earlier, Peter, is that the, it's the idea which is the important yeah. thing. Yeah, and so good. maybe one day you'll be able to, type into an AI thing, draw Suella Bravman's face as the front of a plane. Yeah. But you've still had to have that thought. Yeah, there is that. And I'm not the slightest bit worried about AI because I'm in my 80s now. And I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, hard, I'm hardly going to be you know, sort of troubled by it, really. Um, so over to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have to battle it. Question from Fiona in the audience. Any cartoon that you subsequently regret? Um... Oh, God. Well, I mean, plenty in terms of my own feeling about it. I'm wishing I hadn't. Uh, I've, had, I've been um, castigated on a number of occasions for um, showing, for mocking people's age. I mean, for example, Biden. 
It's exactly the same age as me. And when someone's picked that up, they say, well, how can you, you know, slam someone for being the same age as you? Well, my answer to that is I'm not trying to be president of the United States. (laughs) And and the same happened with um, Ming Campbell as well. I can remember uh, when he became leader of the Lib Dems, a long time ago now, he surrounded himself with young, attractive women at one conference to make him, you know, look sort of more, <laughs> if you like, with it, as I suppose he would have thought. I got really, you know, rounded on giving him a Zimmer frame and all the rest of it <laughs> and all that sort of thing. What about you, Morsa? Uh, I don't I, think you look back, you've looked back, back on regret. Not, not politically. Sort of, I haven't done any of that sort of regret that I... Well, I, maybe, but I, no, I don't think so. I think it's more that I haven't done a good enough job of it. You know, okay. So it's sort of... So people maybe have misunderstood my message. The thing I really like to do is to have no words at all. So it's just said visually. And I think people sort of like to get the joke without it being spelled out, but sometimes maybe too cryptic. And then if the story is, is then also a bit sensitive, and then it's sort of... And, and, and you just basically don't hit the target. That's, you know, it's, they're bad cartoons, basically. I think that's, that's what I regret, is the, is the bad ones. The question for you, Mawson, do you think you'd be producing similar work if you were still in Norway? Does it differ much, the humour and attitudes towards politicians? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I mean, they, they are much ruder, the cartoons, in Norway. They, they, uh, so when I, I work for a Norwegian newspaper as well, and we got much more freedom with uh, sort of bodily functions. <laughs> and that's sort of, uh, um, so uh, th- that's slightly different. But politics there is much duller than here. Uh, it's just a very rich country. And they, they all sort of just like, it's more about sort of where do we place the billions, not whether we have them or not, you know. So it's just, uh, it, it creates a, it has got a long history of political cartooning there as well, but it's, uh, it's definitely not as entertaining as here. That's for sure. Uh, oh, this is good. If all your cartoons except one were destroyed... Which would you want to be the one that was saved? Um, well, I, I, I did one that I'm, I still think is probably the, the best one I did, and that is, although I'm not particularly keen on the drawing, it was when Gove knifed <laughs> uh, Boris Johnson in the back when he was running his campaign, decided to run himself, and left Johnson unable to, left floundering without a campaign and all the rest of it. And so he knifed him in the back, but like all people who wield the sword, you're never going to get away with it. And so the knife came right through Boris and straight into his front. And uh, so I was, and that happened because the story unfolded uh, during the course of a morning. And I was lucky enough to sort of get an idea, again, one of those no words, uh, which sort of summed up what was going to be happening to him and showed what had happened to Johnson. Uh, and luckily for me, they were, they were both Tories. So they both did for each other. <laughs> and the beauty of that is that Michael Gove went on to repeatedly knife Boris Johnson. Yes. What about you, Morton? What's your one, your <laughs> one joy that you'd say? I think it's one that I... I uh, it's a Biden one when he came into... It doesn't describe well, but when he came into the Oval Office and he w- it was just sort of the aftermath of Trump. All the detritus of Trump. 
which was so much fun to draw. You had a spray tan on the wall and you had the sort of uh, burger boxes. And, and I, it, I really spent a long time on it. Uh, but the, the thing that made it my favourite was I first suggested it as a cover for The Spectator because I do their covers every week. And they didn't sort of go for it. They were just like, hmm. And then I tried it for The Times on Sunday. And they were just like, nah. And then I just thought, well, I'm going to try it again on Monday. Uh, and uh, Which is very rare that you can do that with a sort of news story going that long. But uh, And they went for it. And it was exceedingly popular. So that's what was sort of like... Yes. I do know, it was like a sort of Where's Wally picture. The more you looked at it, the more yeah. sort of things you found. Yeah. Um, uh, but for now, please do thank Peter Books of Waterball. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future ones. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.